So thank you to Gary and to Jody. Um, some of you don't know, but um, because in Jody's capacity here, uh, it's sometimes obfuscated, but she's, you know, one of the truly remarkable, inimitable, and very original poets that we have in this country. So if you haven't seen her work, um, the novel I'm going to read from is called Just Tell Me. And um, I think this just comes out of, um, it's a novel about marriages, two marriages. Uh, and it just comes out of finally in a marriage where all the prefatory remarks somehow leave and when somebody's chagrined or has something, you end up just saying, just tell me, you know, to get it, get right at what should be gotten at. The epigraph is from Leonard Cohen. Your saddest day will arrive, your most joyful day too. You simply must be patient. And um, this book takes place pretty much exclusively in the library of of my farmhouse in Callis. It's an 1846 house. Um, and you'll hear about that. It's told in, uh, you'll, well, I'll just start reading it. <laughs> the, the first, um, because framing a, a, a novel is impossible, I'm just gonna read the first 10 or 12 pages and, and uh, you'll, you'll see. This cha first chapter is called Motion in Library. I am writing this in ghost first person. When she stepped from the farmhouse porch, Zachary knew from her slightly lopsided smile, eyes squinted against tears, that his wife Muriel's thesis defense had been strenuous. When it came to her expressions, Muriel sometimes put her emotions on highest exhibit by exaggerating a suppression of them. I got through it, she said. Oh, I know you did more than that, Zachary said. Congratulations, you've worked so hard. They had a good kiss. He must have felt the cold on her face. Anyway, she was now Dr. Muriel Struth. He could also see that the drive in early December sleet and on the icy roads Medford, Massachusetts, home to their farmhouse in Callis, Vermont, had worn Muriel to a frazzle. How do you want to celebrate, he said. Muriel moved her coat and draped it over a chair. For starters, she said, a cup of tea in the bath. She kicked off her boots, crossed her arms, and grasping its bottom hem, lifted off her sweater, which she carried into the library. She set her sweater on the rocking chair. She then walked along the wooden floor with its wide slats to the bathroom. She ran a hot bath. Japanese bath salts tinged the water an orange hue. She heard the Chopin nocturnes that Zachary had placed on the old phonograph in the living room. They had quite a collection of vinyl albums. The nocturnes were what she often played arriving home after a long drive needing just to unwind and not think. Standing in the bathroom doorway, her peach colored blouse half unbuttoned her gray slacks on the floor. Muriel called toward the kitchen. Zach, 
I only didn't hug and squeeze you because I want to save every ounce of strength for later. In a few moments, Zachary set a steaming cup of cinnamon tea on the windowsill next to the bathtub. Muriel had been sitting on the rim, one hand monitoring the water level and temperature. She stood and turned off the faucet. She dropped her blouse, brassiere, panties, and socks to the floor and then slid into the bath. What a day for you, Zachary said. He picked up her clothes, carried them to the laundry room, and set them on top of the washing machine because the volume of bath water combined with what the wash cycle required might strain the capacities of the artesian well. Probably not, but why risk an automatic shutdown of the pump, which was 230 feet? Muriel's clothes could wait. The laundry room window displayed ostrich feathers of frost. Zachary went upstairs. Watching Muriel and Zachary since I died and returned to this farmhouse, I have come to believe that certain evenings delivered them into each other's arms as if the passing hours themselves had it in mind all day and finally could not wait. There was so much human urgency, but also something more, perhaps indefinable, at least I couldn't define it. There just seemed to be a powerful sense of predestination about it. I'm sure that neither of them would be caught dead using the words, delivered them into each other's arms. That's perhaps my own literary pretension at work. Muriel Struth and Zachary Andrews. Anders now own this 1845 farmhouse. Notice I did not say my former farmhouse. I am still in residence here. Things should be stated directly, don't you think? And now I must mention motion in library. Muriel and Zachary had put in a state-of-the-art alarm system. There had been some robberies in the neighboring villages of Woodbury and, and Plainfield, but along with motion detect detectors, there were highly sensitive smoke and carbon monoxide detectors as well. Since I wander freely through the farmhouse, there seemed no determinable logic as to why only the motion detector and the library kept registering a disturbance. It was now occurring quite often. I figured it might somehow be a reaction to the metaphysics or physics or something of my condition, and though I don't unfailingly set off the motion and library alarm each time I enter the library when the alarm is set, when it does happen, a dispatcher at Onion River Security in Montpelier receives the motion in library bulletin. According to procedure, volunteer responders in a predetermined order are telephoned. The way Muriel and Zachary have it, first on the list are Jody and David, writers and translators who live just around the curve in the dirt road. They are followed by Eric and Kathy, who both work in ecological conservation, and then Erica, a radio programmer and private investigator, who lives halfway between the farmhouse and Route 14. And last to be contacted is Jasper Soames, a retired high school math teacher who lives in Plainfield. The motion and library phenomenon is driving Muriel and Zachary a little bonkers. They are so embarrassed to have to keep apologizing to judicious neighbors who they are only just getting to know. No big deal, Jody said. We do for each other. When Muriel and finally said to Zachary, why don't we carry out a little experiment and disconnect the motion detector in the library and see what happens, he said, Muriel, you want to disconnect the motion detector in the one room motion is being detected. That's counterintuitive. Counter to your intuition, she said, but not to anyone else's in the whole world. This did not amount to a quarrel, only an exchange of sentences with tones calibrated, as Buddhists suggest, to not bring something to a painful point.
so f so far in their so far in their two-year marriage, they have been talented at this. Each time the motion in library lights up the switchboard, so to speak, it's usually been the first responder located at home who walks or drives over and checks things out. Should none of the responders be home, messages are left, and the volunteer fire department as a kind of last resort is called. But when they are called, it costs $145 for them to come out to the house, no matter what they find or don't find. In other words, nothing so far has been found amiss. There was the one time when none of the first responders could be contacted and Eddie Zeifert, a technician at Onion River Security, met five men from the volunteer fire department at the house where he discovered the 534-page collected poems of Wallace Stevens face down on the library floor. When the next day Eddie stood in the kitchen consulting with Muriel, he said, Mrs. Anders, with that book, let me put it this way. That book would have had to have flown around the room, then descended in slow motion, and then at the last possible second, doubled its weight and rate of speed and slammed to the floor directly on one of the sensors beneath the Turkish rug. Then that motion and library alarm might have possibly been set off. Thank you for your hypotheses, Edward, Muriel said. She wrote him a check for $45, the minimum for a consultation. Muriel and Zachary's main coon cat named Epilogue, for the fact that he concludes the lives of so many mice, who weighs around 16 pounds, simply never enters the library unless Muriel is clacking away on her royal manual typewriter on her desk. And if Muriel is home, surely the alarm is turned off. In fact, Epilogue likes to drape himself across the typewriter itself. He's my welcome writer's block, Muriel said. Anyway, I feel pretty bad because at that aforementioned night, on that aforementioned night when Muriel and Zachary were at the Savoy Theater in town dinner afterwards, I had indeed been reading the collected poems of Wallace Stevens when I dozed off in the rocking chair and the book had fallen to the floor and I fell directly on top of it and slept on the floor. I didn't think I still had weight, and may not, in fact. What woke me was when Jasper Soames said out loud to himself, all the goddamn way over here and nothing. Well, maybe there's something in the fridge. I stood up and leaned against a bookshelf. He put the collected poems of Wallace Steven, Stevens on Muriel's desk and then went into the kitchen where he prepared a meatloaf sandwich and left a note. The motion in library went off again. I made a meatloaf sandwich, Jasper. I've studied it, and there's nothing in the user's manual that could explain what happens here. On yet another occasion, a technician named Abner Frame said, these old houses have their secrets, is how I like to think of it. There was a house over in Cabot. I inspected top to bottom, bottom to top. It could have been anything set their alarm off, a drop of rain blown through a screen door, a spider getting executed. Who knows? My boss likes to say that some old farmhouses like yours they resist anything to do with modern life, and by that he generally means since the Civil War. If you consider, as I do, an old house as a sentient being that gets into moods and does things on its own volition, then perhaps it's not me setting off the alarm in the first place. Still, I think I should experiment and stay out of the library when the alarm is set. Problem is, to me, the library is the most comfortable room in the house. It's where all the best books are. I thought of turning off the alarm until I saw headlights in the trees 
or at least heard their car coming up the road. But here's what occurred a few days ago when I tried that. Muriel and Zachary had driven over to their new friend Tobin's house for dinner on Jack Hill Road. The moment their car was out of view, I pressed the code to connect, disconnect the alarm and then went into the library. Epilogue, sensed something and sauntered in, finally hopping up into Muriel's desk and then laying across her typewriter where he closed his eyes. I decided of late to reread all the novels of Thomas Hardy. I took far from the matting crowd down from the shelf, sat in the rocking chair and began to read. Reaching page 108, I dozed off, when sudden, which sudden bout of sleep happens often to me night and day. I woke to hear Muriel in the kitchen. I definitely set the alarm, Zach. You know how compulsive I am about it. You know how afraid of a house fire I am, and you know I run through my mental checklist. I absolutely, positively set the alarm. I'll look through the house, Zachary said. Zachary went into every room, even down to the basement. Muriel stayed in the kitchen. Back at the top of the basement stairs, Zachary said, Freddy Krueger left a note. He didn't like that we had all these books in the house, so he's not staying with us anymore. Ha, 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 Muriel said. Zachary, I set the alarm. It's an electronic glitch of some sort, he said. I'll stop by the alarm company tomorrow, which he did, and Eddie Zeifert was again sent out, who checked the entire system and found nothing wrong. The bill this time was $75 due to the inspection. Handing a check to Eddie, Muriel said, Mr. Zeifert, I set the alarm. Back to the evening following Muriel's thesis defense. It was now heavily snowing. Muriel did not give a thought to putting on her robe after stepping from the bath. Hearing Chopin's nocturne, she walked up the stairs. Zachary was waiting for her in bed wearing only a t-shirt with a caricature of Bob Dylan on it and the words, how does it feel? <laughs> she took a sip from the shot glass of whiskey Zachary had placed on the bedside table. There was dim snow light as if delivered from the blanketed field in back of the house, seemingly held by the wide picture window. The bedroom was still warm, but its wood stove was down to glowing embers. Otherwise, the farmhouse was dark. Under the bedclothes, Muriel pressed up against Zachary kissed his ear, whispered sweet nothings, and things began. This is where I perhaps should provide myself with an admonition, counsel, advice, definite reproof, caution, all of these, all of these, and yet I stayed and watched. This may not reflect well on me, certainly, as I observe a marriage other than my own unfolding day by day in my farmhouse, Things should be stated directly, even when they reflect with harsh indictment on me, I feel. And almost right away, when Muriel and Zachary had finished making love, I went into the library and tried to find the language to describe what I had seen. I write longhand in black moleskin notebooks, which I keep under a pair of loose slats in my writing cabin, which is about 50 yards from the house itself. Epilogue has, wit has witnessed the notebook floating through the air, I fill these notebooks with all sorts of daily observations. Someday Muriel and Zachary might discover them and know something of who they were or are, at least by my lights. That sentiment, of course, contains the pretentiousness of any chronicler of another's life. Naturally, I have no antecedent experiences or models for any of this. Of course I don't. I mean the observing and the writing down what I see, except possibly the novels of Junichiro Tanazaki which I read during the last year of my life. There was the key and diary of a mad old man, 
which are, you might say, besotted by voyeurism and other questionable behaviors, and yet often the unscrupulous and despairing intellects of their first-person narrators demonstrate a deeply earned pathos and toward marriage itself an abiding sense of astonished melancholy. The heart is seldom rational, the mind sometimes. An hour earlier, Muriel was lying on top of Zachary and had just drawn her husband inside her, a duet of intake of breath and moan, when he said, what is it? You have a look, what is it? Muriel held Zachary's arms above his head, situating herself so that she could move her hips ever so slowly. And then she took one of his hands and placed it on her own lower back. He put his other hand flat against Muriel's heart and said, just tell me. In a moment, in a moment, she said, and closed her eyes. Zachary put his hand on her shoulder while his other hand remained on her back. And Muriel kissed him deeply as they locked into their tight, circular motion. Zachary had an expression, as I read it, of hope that his wife would not answer his question, that they would stay lost away from words. A particular moan more or less sent me downstairs, but not into the library. Muriel's thesis at Tufts was titled Parentheses, the poems of Mukai Korin. The word parentheses referred to Korin's signature invention, considered modernist, of composing a single line within parentheses, a line that offered an autonomous erotic tableau, yet still interacted with the poem in its narrative entirety. Muriel had translated 45 of Corin's poems with the help of a friend she originally met at a conference and who arranged for her adjunct teaching on her own campus, University of New Hampshire. Her name was Kazumi Tanaka. Kazumi had provided rough literal renditions which Muriel worked long hours to shape in English. She had most of them memorized as well, so that when Zachary said, again, just tell me, she held his face in her hands, caught her breath, and recited one of the poems. Today I feel like a butterfly that has landed on an ancient wooden ship. I am comfortable in my dimensions. I do not feel small or reduced. Parentheses. While traveling the length of her body, he discovers honey with his tongue. End parentheses. No one on the ship notices my beautiful wings, nor that I am sad. All of this is just the way life is. At 3 a.m., I read that very poem on Muriel's desk, and when she recited it to her husband, I felt she was confessing what she wanted, which was to linger a while inside the parentheses to ask that he somehow be instructed by what was written there, so that when she repeated the line, while traveling the length of her body, he discovers honey with his tongue, Muriel lifted herself from Zachary and lay on her back beside him. Given the parentheses and Muriel's languorous stretched posture then, it was impossible to imagine how the invitation could be misinterpreted. Zachary began to travel with his mouth along her neck, shoulders, then to her breasts, and then down along her thigh, and then upward from her knees. It was a far more beautifully complicated moment than certainly I'm able to describe, except to say that it all seemed the very best possible use of scholarship. I was happy for them, perhaps even envious in their marriage, 
that there were at least 44 more poems to go. And of course, once memorized, any single poem could be repeated as the occasion demanded. Um, Zachary was in his fourth month of working on the missing child case of Corrine Moore. Th there is a, a, a case that happened over in Adamant that I've been haunted by for years, and it is the central trajectory of the whole book. Zachary was in his fourth month of working on the missing child case of Corrine Moore. It was his case, but every case at his agency, the Green Mountain Agency, discussed at meetings held twice a week at least. The agency consisted of the director, David Vlamick, and five investigators, of which Zachary was the newest. And following protocol, everything he learned in the course of his investigation, he shared with the other law enforcement organizations. At 4 a.m. the morning following Muriel's thesis defense, Zachary had startled awake in a cold sweat and got right out of bed, drank a glass of water, put on his cotton robe, got the fire cranked up in the bedroom wood stove. He went into the smaller of two guest rooms which served as his office. He had duplicated copies of the ongoing file on Corrine Moore on his desk. He switched on the gooseneck lamp. He sat at his desk looking at a photograph of Corrine Moore taken a few weeks before she went missing. Sweet looking kid, she was standing in her family's kitchen holding the Peterson Guide to Moths. Corrine was wearing khaki shorts, a lime green t-shirt that read, too many books, too little time which her mother had purchased at Bear Pond Books in town. She wore black low-cut tennis shoes. Her dark brown hair was cut short with a straight line of bangs across her forehead. She had a polka dot band-aid on her right knee. She had a big smile. She was pointing to a moth on the wall, which was quite visible in the photograph, to Corrine's left. The date written on the back of the photograph was August 19, 1994, only 13 days before she went missing. In a short while, Muriel mumbled, Zach, reached for her husband and saw that he wasn't there, got out of bed and walked to his office. She wore just one of Zachary's flannel shirts. Standing in the doorway, she said, is all that paperwork about Corrine Moore? Yeah, couldn't sleep, so I'm reviewing her file again, he said. I had a dream of her taking moths from her neighbor's wall like she does. Dream or no, I even recognized which house it was. You're getting to know where we live in a way most people wouldn't, darling. I guess that's right. She massaged his shoulders. Only a few steps from us in bed to your desk for the search for that poor child to begin again, she said. That makes me feel very much in it with you. And when she saw that Zachary may have taken this in part as an admonition, or even a statement about the uncomfortably close proximity between joy and sadness. She said, I think about her a lot too, my love. I want you to know that. I hope as much as anyone that she's not only alive, but somehow completely unharmed. I know, Zachary said, I know you do. Muriel went downstairs to the library and typed up a final version of her and Kazumi's most recent translation. Tragedies befall us one after the next, each more difficult to recover from. Still, the light this morning was beautiful in the distant pines, and close by light was beautiful in the willows. Parentheses. It's now just dusk. 
yet with your placing lemon-tasting fingerprints on your breasts for me to erase, the folding of clothes and the making of tea will need weight. Friends named their daughter after an actress who drowned. Eventually, the daughter won every swim competition. Her nickname was Flying Fish. The morning light is beautiful. Today, a tragedy may befall us. Reeling it out of the typewriter, Muriel carried the sheet of paper upstairs. How long would Zachary be poring over Corrine Moore's file? However, one thing that I believe Muriel had learned for certain about her marriage was that, though it didn't always work, once she determines her husband's mood, she didn't expediently judge it and didn't try right then to change it, but made the effort to put whatever mood to good use. And I believe she wanted Zachary to act likewise toward her. She went into the kitchen, placed a lemon on the breadboard, and cut it in half. She carried the lemon halves up to their bedroom and set them on the bedside table. It was still steadily snowing. She took off the flannel shirt and folded it on the bureau. In bed, again, she read the translation out loud in a whisper. She read the lines within the parentheses a second time. She moved the lemon halves a little closer to the on the table. Ever so slightly drowsy, she waited for Zachary to extricate, extricate himself from the ghastly predicament of Corrine Moores, the missing child on whom so much depended. But as it turned out, he kept to his office. He reviewed the complete dossier and took notes. Muriel fell asleep. Zachary brought her a cup of coffee at 8.30 a.m. Let's go to Kismet for dinner tonight, he said, to celebrate your triumph, Dr. Struth. She pushed a stack of paperbacks in front of the slices of lemon. That'd be nice, she said. He was fully dressed now, jeans, t-shirt, sweater, thick socks, and he held a file folder. Thank you. <laughs>